Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. You once again find yourself listening to the Newman brothers, Dan and Andrew, and the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the ever-growing Sports History Network. I'm Dan Newman, and I'm joined, as always, by Andrew Newman. And today's topic is one that is a little bit timely, although luckily for everybody, not as timely as we thought it would be. A few weeks ago, a few weeks ago from when we're recording this, and probably a few weeks later, even still, from when this is going to be aired, the Major League Baseball, the players and the owners averted the possibility of a strike that would take away part or even all of the 2022 baseball season. So we decided this would be a good opportunity to go back and talk about the one time in history where a strike, a labor stoppage actually did lead to the ending premature ending of a major league baseball season. And we're going to talk about the 1994 major league baseball player strike. And as I mentioned, I'm Dan Newman and I'm joined by Andrew Newman. Andrew, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm okay, Dan. I'm, I'm a bit under the weather. Uh, I've been battling a cold for the last few days. Um, so today will be sort of like my, uh, Michael Jordan flu game, except instead of a uh, an NBA finals game uh, watched by tens of millions, this will be a podcast listened to by dozens. Mm. And unlike Michael Jordan, I actually am sick. And I'm not just using this as a marketing tool to sell sneakers and things for generations. Um, yeah, because Michael gonna... Jordan, Michael Jordan would have no legacy if it wasn't for that one game. So, well, it's part of his aura, his carefully cultivated. Aura. We're looking forward to, to this tonight, uh, this episode. Um, when we came up with the idea, we were thinking that we might be looking at a major work stoppage in baseball. Um, kind of interestingly, we're recording this tonight on Wednesday, March the 30th. Uh, tomorrow night, or excuse me, tomorrow was originally scheduled to be opening day uh, across Major League Baseball. Thankfully, due to some quick... Uh, you know, some quick negotiations at the gun. They were able to salvage a 162 game season for this year, starting only a week late. So we are only about a week from the uh, start of the season, just about a week late. And they'll fill in the first week uh, throughout the year, double headers and things like that. Um, but we came about as close as we've come in a long time with baseball specifically to a major lost time work stoppage. And that's uh, kind of the backdrop on which we will talk about the 1994 strike today. And incidentally, just as a little bit of an aside, in some ways it ends up being a blessing in disguise because I don't know what it's like in New York at the moment, but it is 
freezing a little better today, but it's been freezing all week in the the Maryland DC area. So we might've wow. dodged a little bit of a bullet by not having opening day be for another week. Well, and that's what I was going to say. Um, what well, one of the reasons I probably am experiencing uh, the symptoms of a cold is the last three days in the Northeast um, Monday specifically, but Monday, Tuesday, and then today, which is a Wednesday, it's been brutal cold weather out. Um, it's currently 39 degrees. I don't know if it got much above 40 today. 20s every morning as I've been driving to work this week. Um, Monday, I don't think it made it much above the 20s. The Yankees were scheduled to start on the road in Texas, but that probably means originally the Mets would have been home. So the Mets would have been home tomorrow. Now, tomorrow it's supposed to be warmer, but I've always sort of, um, I understand the romantic nature of opening day and things like that, but for most, like growing up in the New York area and then going to school in Philly and stuff, most of the time when people talk about opening day, I'd be like, you out of your mind? It's going to be 43 degrees and bitter cold. Like it's never, I've gone to a few opening days in spite of that, but I usually like to go to my first baseball game of the year right around mid-May, which is right around my birthday, because it can be pretty brutal in the Northeast um, this time of year. I went once at Shea and once at, I think only once at Nationals Park. And the Nationals Park was obviously warmer than it was at Shea. I think we had a pretty warm day when I went at Shea too. But yeah, I mean, you see clips of, you know, snow flying at Yankee Stadium and it's it's not always the best. Mm. So I think, um, where do we want to start with this? Because there's so many different (laughs) ways you can look at the strike. There's the on-field, the off-field. You can look at the sort of the the negotiation, the business side of it. So what sort of, what do we want to talk about first when it comes to all of this? So let's look through history here as one would expect and just give a brief primer of sort of what led us up to 1994. Um, And I think most people listening to this podcast will expect this from us. um, But what you're not going to get here is you're not going to get Oh, it was, you know, the millionaires against the billionaires. And you're not going to get, oh, it's just greed and the fans got squeezed out. We'll talk about the fan reaction and sort of the pervasiveness of the certain narratives and things like that. And we'll talk about that in sort of the end in the fallout section. But we're going to endeavor to be a little, um, to furnish a more uh, robust article of broadcasting here as we talk about this. So I guess the place we really should start And I know you're going to shudder a little when it because it's going to seem like I'm taking you back through time itself. But just as a brief, the lead to 1994 really starts with the founding of the Major League Baseball Players Association. Um, You know, for years before that, and obviously we could really go far back and talk about the Brotherhood League and the Players Association and all that. But, you know, the like most sports and like most industries, players were largely without rights for a long time in professional baseball. Um, The reserve clause, basically you signed a series of one year contracts in perpetuity. And unless you're the only way you changed teams was either if your team traded you or if your team, for whatever reason, decided we're not even going to offer you a contract and they would place you on waivers. And then you were, you know, somewhat up to sign with, whoever you wanted to sign with. But in general, you know, a player, even, even Joe DiMaggio became famous for this. He'd go in every year and have to negotiate with Yankees ownership. And they'd say, well, we're willing to pay you this much money. 
And he would say, well, I want this much. And they, you know, a lot of times they would say, well, no. And the only thing, the, the only recourse the player had was to just not come. Then it's not like he could negotiate with a different team. The famous story is actually a guy who is, is very much a hero of baseball in another context. Um, but Ralph Kiner, when he was with the Pirates, he went in to negotiate with Branch Rickey, who you don't know Branch Rickey, obviously most known for bringing Jackie Robbins into the Dodgers in the 40s. And Kiner asked for a salary increase and Rickey wouldn't give it to him, may have even been a salary cut. And he said, Ralph, we finished last with you. We could have finished last without you. And so that was you couldn't do anything as a player. You, you know, they decided what you were worth. And guys so, did held out. DiMaggio held out a little bit. Koufax and Drysdale held out in the mid 60s together one time. But you're right. By and large, they were powerless. Yep. So the Players Association actually dates back to the 50s, but it really had no teeth to it um, until 1966 when Marvin Miller takes over. Um, he just recently went into the Baseball Hall of Fame. You know, if it was from a totally objective standpoint, he's one of the most significant non player figures in baseball history. Um, he, the first CBA was negotiated in 1968. Um, you know, it said raise the, and I'll just go over some of the details here, raise the minimum salary from 6,000 to 10,000, which, you know, right away you can scoff at the salaries, but that he nearly doubled the minimum salary in baseball. 1970 CBA included arbitration to resolve disputes. Um, and then we'll we'll just cut cover a few things and then we'll I'll go over some of the, the previous work stoppages. But some of the bigger things were um Andy uh, Messersmith and Dave McNally, 1974. Uh their contracts expire, they roll over again the reserve clause, which we mentioned. This was the opportunity Miller was waiting for. He goes in front of an arbitrator, um, and they overturn the baseball reserve clause, which essentially creates modern free agency as we know it. And then as we'll get to in a few minutes, there is a striking backlash to this, which I never realized until doing my research for this episode, how much collusion factored into the animus that these two sides had going into the 94 strike. Um, So Miller's there until the uh, mid eighties. And then he, uh, steps down in 1983 and Donald fear takes over who we will talk about in just a few minutes here. Um, as he is still at the helm of the players association in 1994, when the events in question start, um, we mentioned the union established in 66. The first strike is in 1972. It lasts for the first two weeks of April. Um, 86 games are canceled player pensions, salary arbitration, are the uh, heart of the matter. Then in 73, there's a lockout in the off season, but no um, spring training is delayed again over arbitration, but no significant, no games are canceled. And you get a few more of these 76, the start of spring training is delayed for a lockout this time. 80, there's a strike at the end of spring training. And then I think the first significant strike that people remember or work stoppage is the 1981 season where in the middle of the season, there was a strike from June 10th, or excuse me, June 12th until July 31st. 713 games are canceled. The season is essentially split into two, where all the teams that were in first at the start of the strike 
are guaranteed playoff spots. And then they basically start the season over again after the strike and all the teams that finish in first in the second half of the season also go to the playoffs. So it's really two different seasons. And I actually just finished reading a book on this 1981 season called split season 1981 by Jeff Katz, who's a baseball historian and also the former commissioner of, sorry, former commissioner, former mayor of Cooperstown, New York. And the main issue in that strike was compensation for free agent signings. So mm-hmm. the owners wanted to, set up a system where if a team signed a free agent who'd been with another team, the team that lost the player would be able to draft somebody off of the roster of the team that had signed the player. And obviously you'd be able to protect X number of players, but the thought, at least, you know, the players claimed that by proposing this, the owners were trying to create a, major disincentive to signing free agents. And so that sort of is a big part of, I guess it's really a part of all labor issues in baseball from, you know, from the seventies on is how to prevent the owners want to prevent teams from suffering too much when they can't resign their own free agents. So we go to 81 that happens it's obviously you know it's kind of a quirky thing people talk about now but this was a significant labor stoppage they had to stop the season for nearly two full months split the season in two you know certainly not a um not something that the owners want to replicate and you know we were a few years into what you consider modern free agency you think about the yankees of the late 70s signing guys like reggie jackson um And I think a key moment that changed a lot of this was in 1984. And that was when uh, a new commissioner comes in in 1984, Peter Uberoff. And he basically, and he's he's just come off of being the um, uh, head of the LA Olympic Committee, uh, the Summer Olympics in 1984. He becomes the commissioner. He holds a meeting with the owners and tells them all that they're damn dumb for trying to improve their teams, be a free agency and implored them to focus on the bottom line, as opposed to winning baseball games. He later in a GM meeting told them that it was not smart to sign long-term contracts. And it says the message was clear. And soon after that, a system was set up by clubs in which they secretly agreed to limit position player, free agent contracts to three years and B limit pitcher free agent contracts to two years. Um, It says, while some owners, and this is the interesting part, while some owners were at least a little uncomfortable with this, others, such as White Sox owner Jerry Reinsdorf and Brewers owner Bud Selig, were enthusiastic and helped marshal support for this scheme. The agreement was secret because it violated the collective bargaining agreement, which had specifically barred coordination among clubs in contract negotiations. And that was later. I mean, they later were found to have done that in a court, in a court of law. So it's not just speculation, right? That They were, they were, they were later found to guilty of that in some sort of a court proceeding. Is that right? Yeah. And I'll, I'll get to the specific uh, details. And I, I, this was an interesting wrinkle I saw. So um, that part of the CBA, that barred coordination between clubs also barred coordination between players. And originally that was put in in 1968 at the insistence of the owners. 
because they were mad, like you mentioned, that Koufax and Drysdale had coordinated. So they said, we don't want the players to coordinate and we won't coordinate either. So 15 years later, um, they've in the 85, 86, 86, 87, and 87, 88 off seasons um, were what are, what's considered the collusion, um, were considered the collusion off seasons. Um, Sports Illustrated famously ran a cover story about how strange it was that nobody wanted to sign Kirk Gibson. Many other of the game's biggest stars, including Carl Fisk, Tim Raines, Paul Molitor, Jack Morris, Jack Clark, and Andre Dawson, were unable to interest any teams other than their current ones. Uh, between 1985 and 1988, players' salaries dropped 16%, while owners' profits went up 15%. Uh, it said Don Fear filed grievances in the wake of all three off-seasons, um, resulted in findings of CBA violating collusions, massive financial awards to the players. And this I thought was also interesting. Players who were affected by collusion were immediately given what was called new look free agency, which allowed them to shop themselves on the open market without having to risk their current contracts. So they could remain under contract, but also be free agents. So if they didn't like any deals out there, they could keep their current deals. But that was sort of the make good for them. So yeah, and I'm I'm reading through. There's a a great book which some of our listeners may be aware of. It's called Lord of the Realm, Lords of the Realm. It's written by a guy named John Hellyer. Who this is a sort of the book. It, it shows up a lot of times on these lists of you know 100 greatest sports books or greatest baseball books or that type of thing. And he sort of and and this, it's by no means a pro owner book by any means, but he sort of maybe describes it with a little bit of a lighter touch as far as what the level of collusion was, he makes it sound more like the discussion was Uberoth kind of coming in and saying to these owners, look, you have to, you're, you're going bankrupt here. You have to look at your bottom lines and I'm going to be keeping an eye on you for that. And they sort of come up with some of these policies, um, some of these recommendations. So again, I, I'm not saying that, that there was not collusion because obviously it was found to in court to be so, but I'd, I'd be curious to know exactly like how much of it was the owners all as a group agreeing versus sort of Uberoth kind of maybe with a wink and a nod type of thing, telling them, look, here's what I want you guys to do. So, but your I think your larger point in the context of 94 is very important, which is that it really does lead to a lot of distrust between the players and the ownership. And I think there's also, it speaks to that same tension that we're seeing that, free agency and the ability to control a team's own players is continues to be at the heart of this whole thing. And the, the article I'm, I'm referencing a lot here is it's an article from August of 2019 on NBCSports.com. It's by a guy named Craig Calcaterra. It's called baseball strike. It's got a very generic title. Baseball <laughs> strike, baseball strike in 1994, 95 began 25 years ago, but it's a very detailed article. So a lot of what I'm quoting will be from that. So we'll, we'll cite, the uh, collusion thing happens um, and sort of the immediate aftermath is obviously we talked about these damages that come out. Um, Uberoth is forced to resign uh, prior to the 89 season. He's replaced um, by nationally from Bart Giamatti. Giamatti is not in office very long. He dies before the 89 season is over, replaced by his deputies, Faye Vincent. Um, the owners were not 
uh, fans of Vincent. Um, it says a few short months into his tenure, the CBA expires in December of 89. Uh, during negotiations, an increasingly powerful Bud Selig led a faction of owners of smaller revenue clubs, helped craft the proposal aimed at legally but aggressively reining in escalating salaries, instituting uh, a revenue sharing system and a salary cap. Uh, the players dealing with fallout from collusion considered the proposal a dead issue. The large revenue teams were less than keen on it as well. Uh, lockout began in February of 90. Spring training is mostly wiped out. Um, Vincent on his own crafts a compromise proposal that contains no salary cap, increased the rookie and minimum salary scale, and promised to merely study the concept of revenue sharing. Players consider it a huge win. Owners agreed to it hesitantly, uh, and the wheels were in motion. Seelig was particularly unhappy about it, and within two years, he had orchestrated uh, Faye Vincent's ouster and put himself in position to ascend to the throne, first of interim and then as full-time commissioner. And do you know who the other guy was who wanted to be the commissioner right around that time? I don't. George W. Bush. Oh, you know, I think I've heard that before because he would have still been the Rangers owner at the time. Right? He still owned the Rangers, and this is like 93-ish, and he really wanted the job. And I think he even has to- just left office, so he's got the name value for, for sure. And I think he wanted the job, and I think originally Sealy kind of gave it some indications that he would be all right with that, but then there was some mistrust between Bush and Seelig. And then meanwhile, 1994 is coming. And the other thing Bush is thinking about doing is running for governor. And so finally, when it looks like it's hopeless and he's not going to get this job as commissioner, he sort of throws his hat fully into the political ring and runs for governor from Texas in 94, wins, obviously, and then goes on to be governor and then president. So but he really at the time, he really kind of wanted the job. And it's funny to think how things could be different in so many different parts of life had that happened. The other thing that's interesting to note is that I think Vincent is sort of the last commissioner really in any sport, um, particularly in baseball, that doesn't view himself as working explicitly for the owners. He really does have an idea that I'm sort of intended to be some sort of a middle ground. And you see that with this coming up of this sort of alternate proposal no commissioner would ever do that in any sport today. Yeah, no, it's not even really um, debated. The only one where there's even any sort of uh, gray area at all is with Adam Silver. But the rest of them, I mean, nobody doubts where um, Rob Manfred falls on. Uh, you know, he's just included in the owners group when they talked about this lockout that just ended a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. He's it's Manfred and the owners. Um, mm-hmm. Roger Goodell is the head of the NFL owners. Basically, the way you can look at it is the commissioners now are the heads. You know, Roger Goodell is the head of the NFL owners association. That's really the way to look at it. He's not the commissioner. He's the head of the owners association. Um, now, which gives him obviously power over the players, but um you know, you're right. It's it, they talk about how how he used the best interest of baseball clause, the best interest of baseball and the best interest of the owner's finances being considered two different things by the commissioner were that's a radical thing to look back on 30 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
I think we've kind of set the stage. Vincent retires in 92, or Vincent is forced to resign in, at the end of the 92 season. In February of 94, the owners vote to greatly reduce the commissioner's power to do what Vincent had done and act in the, quote, best interest of baseball. Um, so we're really, we're heading into 94. Um, the original proposal from the owners is unveiled on June 14th of 1994. Um, so right in the midst of this uh, exciting June of 1994 that's been talked so much about with the Rangers and the Knicks and the O.J. Simpson stuff, um, almost in the beginning of the World Cup in the United States, almost overshadowed, is that the owners unveil this proposal right around the same time. And I, if you let me cut in here, I actually have a summary of this. Um, Go ahead. This is from another really good book um, about specifically about the history of the Expos. It's written by a guy named Jonah Carey, who was a writer who wrote extensively on the Expos. You won't hear much I was from gonna, him. I was going to say you want to uh, anymore. He's been in the news a lot the last week or so. Um, is he back in the news? I think he got sentenced. Oh, OK. Yeah, he, he did some things that were not good. Um, then he got out of jail for it and did some more things that were not good. So but anyway, um, it, it is a good book. Um, so the payrolls, the pay, pay uh, salary cap is the first thing that's really a big part of this. And that's, um, you know, like they have in other sports plan included multiple other features designed to tamp down salaries and transfer more monies to owners. Salary arbitration, um, is, uh, eliminated players would be required to, they'd be allowed to file for free agency after four years, instead of the existing rule requiring six years of service time. The free agency itself would become restricted with teams claiming the right to match other clubs, top offers on players who became free agents after five or six years. Again, you're seeing the same theme, make it harder for teams to lose their free agents and easier for them to be reimbursed in some way when they lose the players to free agency. Uh, and, and then it says in exchange, the owner said that guarantee the players would receive 50 of percent of league revenue. Um, that would be a steep drop from the 58% that players were projected to get in the 94 season. Um, and then Kerry just goes on to write that th there's some merit to what the owners are saying here. They know they don't have the explosion in local TV revenue um, that they would have in future years. And that maybe this would be particularly helpful to small market teams like Montreal. So that's the offer, but the players, they're not having it. Yeah, and it's interesting that it's not officially um, refused until July 18th. So at first I looked at this and I, I didn't notice the different month. And I was like, oh, it took them four days only to refuse it. But it actually went on for over a month before they formally rejected the uh, the offer quote here. Or it's not a direct quote, but the summary is basically that uh, the players believe the salary cap was a way for the owners to clean up their own disparity problems with no benefit to the players. Um and then right after rejecting it, or I guess a few days before rejecting it, uh, Fear said, if serious negotiations between the players and owners did not begin soon, the players would go out on strike in September of that year, threatening the postseason. The CBA had expired in December of 93 on New Year's Eve of 93. So they had started the season with no CBA. And that's relevant to today or was relevant to a few weeks ago because the moment, I think December 2nd or midnight of December 1st of 2021 was when the most recent CBA expired and right away the owners locked the players out. 
and the players were kept referring to it as an unnecessary lockout because there's nothing that says the second the CBA expires, you have to go into some sort of labor dispute, um, you know, some sort of labor action rather. But the owners were advised, I guess, that an immediate lockout was was in their best interest. So, you know, in this case, it was a different thing, which was CBA ended. And here we are six months later in the middle of a season that's being played without a CBA. And I don't know if you want to sort of backtrack and, and, and move to on the field at this point, but all of this is happening on in the midst of what has the potential to be a very exciting baseball season. Yeah. Yeah, it's the first year of um, the three divisions. Um, the first year there's going to be a wild card. Um, so there's going to be, you know, an AL East, AL Central, AL West, NL East, NL Central, NL West, three division winners, two wild cards. Um, you're going to have an extra round of playoffs for the first time ever. Um, and you're, you know, there's a few teams that are, that are having really good seasons, uh, the Expos specifically, and I think we can talk a lot about sort of in the aftermath of this, what this season being canceled did to the Expos and ultimately to baseball in Montreal. Um, you know, I think they're the most interesting aspect of it, although there are also some records that, that could have been broken. Um, before we get to that, I think the a couple of big things to touch on were that um, so – in June, the negotiations heat up a little, and I think the ultimately the straw that breaks the camel's back, even though it doesn't come for a couple more months, the owners decide to withhold just under $8 million that they were required to pay into the player's pension and benefit plans. So this is money that had already been part of previous agreements that they were required to pay and they decided as part of a negotiation tactic to withhold that money from those from those funds even though that's obviously not the issue that's being you know discussed at the time we're talking about salary caps and things like that but as a bargaining chip they decide they're going to do that um the june of june 23rd of 94 the senate judiciary committee uh voted on an antitrust legislation, but it was defeated by a vote of 10 to seven. Um, and it said after that, Fair felt there was little choice but to strike. Uh, we felt the 94, we were pushed into it. I still think that's a justified conclusion. July 28th, the Players uh, Association Executive Board sets August 4th, excuse me, August 12th as the strike date. Uh, we get to August 12th and the players don't show up at the parks that day. It's not a surprise. Everybody knew it was coming. I think you, you mentioned the antitrust thing, and I think that's something that's worth um, elaborating on. Baseball had been, and we'll go really far back here. You know, there's something called the Sherman Antitrust Act, which is passed, I believe, in the early 20th or maybe it's the late 19th century. It, it's a basically it prevents monopolies in industry and this came about you know in in the you know late 1800s you know whether it was um the 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 the, the steel industry or the railroad industry you know the, these sort of monopolies trusts where basically one entity owned the entirety of every every company in an industry and created an on in what became an illegal monopoly in the 
what is it like 1914 1915 is the establishment of the federal league in major league baseball and that is sort of an effort at creating a third major league and they get basically bullied out of existence by the two existing major leagues the national and the american league and then file suit basically saying that baseball constitutes an illegal monopoly. Ironically, the federal judge who first hears the case is Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who later would be the first commissioner of baseball in the wake of the Black Sox scandal. And he rules in favor of Major League Baseball, the you know the existing major leagues. Case ends up going all the way up to the Supreme Court, who rules that basically that baseball is not considered a traditional business and that it's exempt from antitrust rules. And it's, you know, even a hundred years later, this antitrust exemption is something anytime anybody in politics, anybody in Congress has any sort of issue with what's going on in major league baseball, there's sort of this sometimes unspoken and sometimes explicit threat. And you saw this a lot during the steroid years that if if baseball doesn't act in a way that you know is desirable by some politicians that they're going to come after this antitrust exemption that baseball's enjoyed for the last hundred years i don't know how that compares to other sports i don't know if like the nfl and the nba whether they enjoy the exact same antitrust exemption i don't think they do because i think the world the the USFL original case was that they were the NFL was found to be an illegal trust there. It was just that the fine was reduced to like $4. So it didn't end up mattering. Yep. And I think, I think that antitrust thing, the exemption, I believe that applies specifically to baseball. Oh. I, I'm, I'm almost positive. Um, I've been thinking when we talked about a lot of this stuff, like it would be kind of sweet to be in the pocket of somebody. You always hear them talk about that, like old timey things like, oh, he was in the pocket of big oil. I want to be in somebody's pocket. Like that'd be an easy living. Like if you were overseeing something, like if I was like in in charge of something and I was just like a puppet, you don't have to work very hard. (laughs) I don't know. I'm reading a life goal of mine. If somebody wants to bribe me somehow um, that we're listening, that's listening to this. I'm in. I'm reading here that baseball, I'm sorry, that the NFL actually has its own that was specifically given in legislation by Congress. And it kind of allows them to cooperate on television contracts and has been sort of viewed as also in effect in other parts of their business operations as well. So it's murky, but you hear about it the most when it comes to baseball, the antitrust exemption. Mm. So uh, let's just talk about a couple of um, a couple of things that happened sort of in the immediate aftermath of the strike, just from the labor negotiation thing. Um, After the uh, last games are played August 11th, strike takes effect August 12th. Starting on August 31st, there's um, negotiations pick up in earnest. There's a three and a half hour negotiation with federal mediators produced. And you heard some of that um, back in 
the winter with this current lockout where the owners wanted to bring in federal mediators, the players refused, the owners tried to to indicate that was a sign the players didn't actually want to to see progress made. So August 31st of 94, um, they there's no progress, no further talks are scheduled. That's when acting commissioner now, Bud Selig, says September 9th is the deadline for canceling the rest of the season. Um, MLBPA offered a counterproposal on the 8th, calling for a 2% tax on the 16 franchises. And I thought this was interesting. 26 teams at the time, uh, or 28 teams, I guess, by then. Yeah, because um, the Marlins and Rockies had come in a year or two before. year before, yeah. A counterproposal ownership calling for a 2% tax on the 16 franchises with the highest payrolls to be divided among the other 12 clubs. Teams in both leagues would share 25% of all gate receipts under the MLBPA's plan. Owners responded by claiming the measures wouldn't meet the cost. On September 14th, Bud Selig called off the rest of the season, including the World Series, and acknowledged that the game had or the strike had torn an irreparable hole in the game's fabric. The move to cancel the rest of the season meant the loss of $580 million in ownership revenue and $230 million in player salaries. It's funny, too, in doing some of my reading, you talked about taxing the top 16 teams. It really is funny to think back about some of the franchises that were considered big market teams in those days. I think Cleveland Indians had one of the largest payrolls in the league. They were right on the cusp of that 95 AL championship team, the Baltimore Orioles, who everybody kind of looks at now as a a small market team, given how consistently terrible they've been for the last five or six years. Toronto was a larger market team. They had just won back-to-back World Series. And you hear those are the type of teams, when you read about this, Steinbrenner kind of considered those teams more of his brethren as big market teams as opposed to the very small market teams that we think of them as now. Yeah. And it, you could argue Toronto, you know, obviously, and we'll talk, we'll, I feel like before we get into the calendar year of 95, now is a good time to look at the, what was lost in the 94 season itself. Um, but, you know, Montreal, obviously irreparable harm was done to them. And we know it was irreparable because they don't exist anymore. Toronto, you could argue just in the last five years has recovered. Because they were the two-time defending World Series champions. And then they were pretty moribund for a long time after that. It hasn't been until about five years ago that they've really started to show signs of life. There were a few cities where this thing really did destroy baseball for a long time. Absolutely. So let's kind of just take a look at kind of... um, So first of all, from a, a, a team, from a standings point of view, Montreal is the best team in baseball they had not they hadn't been in the playoffs since the, the only other time that montreal as a franchise had been in the playoffs they came into the league in 69 along with the mets i'm sorry no they did come with 69 along with uh i think it was san diego was the other nl team that joined that year yeah. i want to say mets obviously didn't join in 69 they won in 69 yeah, 62 brought it to between 61 and 62 they went from 16 to 20 and then 69 brought them to what 24 because that was also Kansas City and Seattle, the pilots, Kansas City and Seattle, which became the Brewers. Yeah. So that went to 24, then 26 or 77 was Seattle, the Mariners and the um, the Blue Jays, Blue Jays. Yeah. And then 
93 and 01 or 93 and 98, excuse me. Go ahead. So Montreal had never been in the playoffs other than 81, which was another split season, another strike season. And they got in, you know, and that what helped them is the fact that twice as many teams got in that year, but they'd sort of been building They're managed by Felipe Alou. They'd been very, very good in 93. They were 94, 68 and one which I don't know what the one is. The one must have been some sort of a rain out or something. Three games behind the, the Phillies in the NL East in the last year of sort of pure divisional play before they went to the wild card regime. 87 wins in 92. So they'd sort of, for the last few years, been gradually building up a contender and... In 94, also, you get the first year of the three divisions. So all of a sudden, the divisions look much different. The We've talked about this before. The National League divisions pre-94 are almost nonsensical. You're talking about the, the NL East and the NL West in the 80s and early 90s? Yes. Yeah, that's, they're tough to parse. So the East in 1993 was the Phillies, which makes sense. Montreal, which makes sense. St. Louis and Chicago, which makes very little sense. Pittsburgh, Florida, and the Mets. The West included the Braves, the Cincinnati Reds, who were east of Chicago. I believe Cincinnati is east of St. Louis, too, isn't it? I'm not a... I would think, yeah. No, it definitely is. Geography expert. So it was almost, it was very strange how the Cubs and the Cardinals, especially the Cardinals, who you would almost consider almost to be like more of a West Coast team, were in the I think you just answered your own own question. They wanted the Cubs and Cardinals were never not going to be in the same division. Yeah, and I think the Cubs had been in the East going back to when they first split up the divisions in 69. But it was just strange. So anyway... Montreal ends up in the same division with the Braves who had been in the playoffs three years in a row. They were, the Braves were just coming off an epic pennant race with the San Francisco giants in the NL West. When the two teams went into the final game of the season tied, they each had 103 wins and the Braves won and the giants lost something like 12 to one to the Dodgers to, fall out and that was bonds first year in san francisco so the divisions are rejiggered and everybody's expecting it's going to be the braves that are the new kings of this new national league east and that that certainly does happen for the rest of the 90s from 95 on but 94 it's this montreal expos team managed by philippe lu the best pitcher is actually Ken Hill, who's got a 16 and five record and a 3.32 ERA. But the most prominent guy, the guy you hear the most about is Pedro. This is Pedro Martinez. He had been on the Dodgers for the previous two years and had been decent, but not great. And then he comes to Montreal and it kind of is, he's not an all-star. He doesn't become an all-star for another couple of years, but it's the first really good season of Pedro Martinez in Montreal. And then another Hall of Famer in the lineup is Larry Walker, who hits 322. He's on the way to a Hall of Fame career. He's 27 already by this point, but 
nonetheless. And then you got guys like Moises Alou, Marquise Grissom, Cliff Floyd, who ends up playing in Major League Baseball forever. John Wetland is the closer later to be the closer for the Yankees in 1996. So maybe not a superstar team. I think sometimes they get overblown a little bit into everybody thinks that they were the next great dynasty. Even if you put the financials of it aside, it's not as if they had four or five future Hall of Famers on the team, but they were really good for one year. No question about it. Yeah, and they had a six-game lead, which certainly wouldn't, you know, didn't guarantee they would have even made the playoff. But they had the best record in baseball. They were six games up on the Braves when the when the season shut down. Um, they probably would have found a way to to. I mean, they had a twenty. Well, let's see. Um, the wild card would have been. I mean, they would have gone to the playoffs. Let's say that. Um, you know, some of these teams, I think, get uh, the benefit of something not happening. Because you get to talk about what would have happened, like, oh, well, if we hadn't, you know, obviously we would have won the World Series. Um, I think sort of on the other side, and we can talk about some of the individual guys, Matt Williams, things like that. But on the other, on the flip side of that is, and all the articles mention this, what we were saved from by not having the rest of this season was what possibly could have ended up being the worst division race of all time. Because in the American League, at the pause of festivities in august the yankees were 70 and 43 uh with a six and a half game lead over baltimore in the east the white Sox had a one game lead over the indians uh and only a four game lead over the royals so you went out a three-team race and then in the west all four teams were in, were within five and a half games of each other and the top three teams the rangers the athletics and the mariners were all within two games of each other the texas rangers were in first 10 games at, under 500 at 52 and 62. So there is a chance that the first year of the, you know, American league West as a one of three divisions might've produced a 90 loss uh, division winner. And if that had happened, you would have had a lot of people kicking and screaming in the first year of this new setup. Yeah, you're right. It's one thing when some NFL team and people complain about that too, when some NFL team's going to be seven, nine, there was one year, I think seven or eight years ago where there was a chance a team was going to get into the playoffs at six and 10 and everybody was all up in arms. Can you imagine if in the first year, because even a lot of people like Bob Costas is one who comes immediately to mind. Even a lot of people who've later come to embrace the wild card. If you were a baseball purist, you hated the wild card in 1994, 1995. And so if it had resulted in a team with, you know, let's say 75 wins, making it into the playoffs, people would have hated it. Yes, that's true. Um, we should probably also talk a little bit just based on our background. This is the first season where the Yan Yankees were about to make the playoffs for the first time in 13 years. Like Montreal, they were with barring some sort of a crazy collapse in the last six weeks of the season, they were a foregone conclusion to at least make the playoffs. People don't realize the Yankees were actually a lot better in the eighties than you might think. They, I think they had the best winning percentage of any team they in did. the eighties, but they just never other than 81, they were never good enough to make it into the playoffs, never good enough to win a division. They hire show Walter in 92. They, they make some free agent signings. They bring 93. They bring in Jimmy key and Wade Boggs. They trade for Paul O'Neill in 93. They're gradually building the 
structure of a winner and at least sort of, you know, at least the very beginning stages of the team that's going to become the Yankee dynasty of the late 90s. Mattingly still around, still not not in his prime by any means anymore, but he's, you know, he hits 304. He's, he's, he's playing better. Key is the ace. They still have, you know, Jim Abbott's still around. You know, they still have some of the guys of like the late 80s, early 90s, the Steve Howe, Bob Wickman, Terry Mulholland type, but they are looking really, really good for the first time in a long time. Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting, what if, um, you know, the, the 94 and 95 Yankees specifically. Um, and I know if you're not a Yankees fan and you want to hear us talk about this, but the 94 and 95 Yankees specifically are like an example of what if things had gone differently, but there's almost an aura of doom about that. Like, had the Yankees won that series in 95 against Seattle, um, everything might have been different. And there's no way it would have been as good. Same thing with 94. If they had, let's say, not won the World Series, but let's say they'd won that division and, you know, gotten to the World Series, everything might have been different. You know what I mean? So it's almost like, um, it's almost like going, oh, what if, but honestly, good that it didn't happen. You know what I mean? I think Yankee fans of a certain age, maybe a little older than we are, a little older than I am, have a certain level of sadness at the fact that Mattingly never got to win a championship. And so I think that there's that whole thought on it is what if things had gone differently in 95? What if the season had been able to finish in 94? I think a lot of that is centered maybe secondarily on Buck Showalter, but particularly on Mattingly. I hear that. And then the other point I would raise is I don't know. Everybody always talks about, well, that, you know, that Expos Yankees World Series that we never got. If Atlanta makes the wild card, which they were leading for the wild card when they went into the strike, they've still got that Hall of Fame pitching staff, Maddox, Glavin and Smoltz, not to mention Steve Avery, who's still sort of in his couple of years where he was a, a pretty decent player. They still have a stacked lineup, Justice, McGriff, you know, all those guys who would lead them to the championship the following year. So I'm not so sure that the Braves don't make it out of that playoffs anyway. Obviously, nothing's guaranteed for the Yankees either. But the idea that it was just a foregone conclusion that it would have been Montreal with no playoff experience going up against a Brave team that had been to the World Series twice in the decade already. I'm not so sure we can just say, oh, well, that would have been Montreal would have been in the World Series a year that gets glossed over a little too much, I think. Yeah. And, and to say nothing of the fact that six games in a month and a half is not insurmountable either. But, you know, you'd be looking at Montreal. Cincinnati was in first in their division, but by half a game. So let's say Cincinnati or Houston. And then let's just call it the Dodgers in the NL and Atlanta as the wild card. And then in the AL, you got let's again, let's call it the Yankees. And let's say whoever wins that horrible AL West and then probably the White Sox and the Indians, the White Sox with Frank Thomas, who I'm going to talk about in a second, who was the MVP of the league. Like, come on, this is not we don't do that in seasons that happen like, oh, those two number one seeds who clearly would have advanced to play each other. Like, we don't do that for much. You know what I mean? Like, so it's interesting. And I do think some of that is 
people talk about that 94 Expos team. And there's, you know, I think as New Yorkers and Yankee fans, people go like, oh, the Yankees were really good that year too. And like, it's kind of throwing the Yankees into that story as well. Um, But, um, you know, there is no doubt though, that whatever we talk about with what happened that season, and I do want to get back to some individual performances in a minute, um, that killed baseball in Montreal. Um, That was the death blow of baseball in Montreal. I don't, um, my memories of baseball, of Expos baseball were all after that. Um, You know, because I was eight during the 94 strike. So I remember like the 93 baseball playoffs and stuff, but I don't remember much before that. So most of what I remember is bad Expos teams where I'd be caught watching them play in the Mets in an absolutely empty stadium with guys you've never heard of. By the next year, they fall to 66 and 78. And they're in last. The year after that, they bounce back a little bit. They're 88 and 74 in second, but they're way back in the Braves. They just keep going under 500. They stick with Alou forever. They're, you know, losing 95 to 100 games almost every year. And by 01, it's just too late. They had that run in 02 where for a couple of weeks, they looked like they might have a chance to be the wild card. By then, Major League Baseball owned them, and they had to agree to sign to add payroll, and they traded for Cliff Floyd and a couple other guys. And they got so bad right after that that by the they had traded Floyd by the deadline anyway, I think, to the Red Sox. Yep, I remember that. The other funny thing about those days was, and this is as a Nationals fan, I think this is kind of funny, Frank Robinson, the great, um, well, mainly Orioles. He had some damn good years in Cincinnati before that. Frank Robinson had been sort of one of Selig's right-hand guys in the commissioner's office. And then when baseball took control of the team, they gave Frank Robinson as a sort of like a, as a favor to Selig, Frank Robinson agreed to manage the Expos for a few years. And he, you know, did a decent enough job. And then, for whatever reason, he decided he still liked managing. He was actually the manager of the Nationals for the first couple of years after they moved to D.C. I think in like 05 and 06, the first couple of years, he was manager of the Nationals. So it ended up being, a, you know, Frank Robinson, who was an older guy, an older gentleman by that point, managed for like six years combined between the Expos and the Nationals. So crazy how that resulted in that. I think the thing with Montreal is, first of all, they couldn't afford to lose the revenue, even for the part of the season that they did. And then it killed fan interest and it killed their ability to get a new stadium, which was something that had been in the works. And they just they just never recovered. And there's a greater question about whether Montreal truly could ever support Major League Baseball, but the strike killed any chances of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. There, there were far more bad years than good even before that um, in terms of attendance and interest and things like that. Um, just a couple of individual things. And, and and to be honest, both of these were long shots. One was an extreme long shot. But, you know, you, you didn't play the last quarter to third of the season. So there's a lot of what ifs. Um, so Tony Gwynn had a chance to be the first to finish over 400 since Ted Williams. He was batting 394 at the time of the strike. We've talked about this before, but like to finish the season 400, he would have had to have been probably hitting about 410 at this point. Cause you, you don't usually add ground in something like that this late in the season. 
If you look at Ted oh. Williams from 41, he was at like 412 for most of the mm-hmm. season, then came down and then bumped a little bit back up. I think who's the other guy? George Brett in like 80. They would say, oh, he almost hit 400. He hit like 390. He did almost, almost 400. Th- what'd you say? It's not almost 400. I don't think of it as being almost 400. And l- unless the guy had like a horrible last week and a half, which I don't know that Brett did. I don't, doubt he did. You have to be up there well above 400 to actually have a chance at hitting 400. So, yeah, the idea that Tony Gwynn would have done that is pretty, pretty slim. A um, couple other sort of interesting things here. Um, Matt Williams uh, had 43 home runs with 47 games left to play. This was when the record was still 61. People have pointed out he was ahead of Maris's pace at that point. This you, you almost have to be my age or younger to remember this, or excuse me, my age or older. Um, there was, you know, pre-98, there were always guys who in mid-August had 45. And then nobody got above like 52 or, or, or maybe not 45, but like 40. He would not have broken that record. I, you know, I, and the way you know that is it took until something we'll talk about at the end of this episode. Nobody broke that record clean. I don't think he would have, but it would have, you know, would have been interesting to see him try. If What if he was at 55 with a week left in the season or something like that? Um, especially not playing at Candlestick Park in September when it started to, well, I, I can't even say when it started to get cold at Candlestick Park, but you know what I mean. Um, this one is a little chintzy that they have on here. Cleveland Indians second baseman Carlos Baerga was unable to extend his record two-year streak of 20 home runs, 200 hits, and 100 RBIs by a second baseman. Yeah, I, I, I don't believe anybody. Somebody went looking for that when they um, wrote that article. Nobody, nobody knew that was something that anybody was caring about in 1994 couple other ones um colorado rockies were in their last season at mile high stadium so they that's right that's right coming to the league in 93 they were going to play in the broncos stadium 93 94 so of course field field opened they were an expansion teams usually those expansion teams draw pretty well they had 3.2 million fans through 57 home games they were averaging 57,570 per game they would have had a good chance of drawing over 4.6 million fans in their 81 home games, um, they would have broken the record that they had set the year before. Um, this is one of the few positive notes that, were, that fans were spared from witnessing one of the worst division races in history, which we talked about. You know, it's um, funny, just real quick, a little bit of a diversion. You talk about that mile high thing. I don't know whether this would be a good podcast episode or just a good thing to look at one night when I've had a few beers, but where teams play when they first come in as expansion teams or as relocated teams is kind of a neat subject. You do a whole episode on the, uh, on the pilots. Cause they basically, the owners basically just lied to them and and lied to baseball. I'm like, no, the stadium's right. And they were like painting it as the, um, like the Dodgers, the Dodgers at LA Coliseum in the late Hmm. fifties. And, um, you know, there's another one that, I, that that I'm blanking on at the moment that's really good. Obviously, when the you know when the Nationals came in, they were at RFK. That's not as big a deal because that had been a a major league stadium. But the where some of these teams play when they're waiting for stadiums is always sure. kind of a fun a fun story. Co- couple other ones. Um, Jeff Bagwell gets the NL MVP. He had broken his hand on a pitch on August 10th, two days before the strike. So he, he probably- wouldn't have been. 
he probably would have been out the rest of the season. So uh, he he did he only missed like two games at the end before no one game before the strike, but he might have been out before the end of the season. Um, and then one other thing here, and I don't know that this is sourced, but it's Wikipedia, so it looks good. It said the Minnesota Twins traded Dave Winfield of the Cleveland Indians for a player. This is named, real. Yeah, to be for a player to be named later. Since the strike led to the season being canceled, no further transactions could be made. The Twins would officially be listed as having sold Winfield to the Indians, but the actual transaction. Can I, can I say what? Do I remember no. this correctly? Yes. Don't they? Don't the owner of the the owners of the Indians buy the owners of the Twins dinner? Team management, but yeah, okay. they went out to dinner. They went out to dinner, and the Indians paid the tab, and it said this essentially meant Winfield had been traded for dinner. <laughs> and then. I feel like before we get into sort of as this wraps up, I just wanted to go with one good quote about uh, from a player's standpoint, not about the strike, but about um, have you ever heard this Dave Henderson quote about this? Because no. so, there's an article I, or I, I saw a little thing about all the players who sort of were retired by this strike, like never played again. OK. Um, and Dave Henderson is one of them. And I got to pull up his exact quote, but um so this is Dave Henderson. He said, they should never, ever let a baseball player have the summer off. As a baseball player, that was my first summer off ever, and I liked it. Once I got introduced to the thing they call Labor Day and had a family barbecue and everything, I said, hell with it. I'm not going back. <laughs> so he was one of the guys who hung it up after that season. But it's interesting to think if you're a major league baseball player and you've, you know, let's say you've been in the majors for 10 years and you were in the minors for four or five years before that. And maybe you were in college and I know things were a little different back then, but you know, even in high school, you were playing maybe into June and you know, I don't know, not everybody played the level of like AAU baseball that guys play now, but it might be the first time since you were 14 or 15, at least that you've had like a baseball free summer where you're like, Oh yeah, it's kind of nice to be able to, watch fireworks on the 4th of July and eat hot dogs. Like, And there were guys, I mean, Mattingly, um, when Mattingly, the night of the strike, they said something along the lines of, you know, this might be my last, he said, this might be my last game ever. So it was, it was a real threat that these guys thought that their careers were just going to be going full blast one day and then retired and then never to come back the next day. It's It really was, it was, and this had never really happened in a sport. I mean, I mean, really to have a because think about it, just to sort of digress for a second here. Considerable time lost. The NFL had the strike in what was it, 82, where they lost what they lose. They ended up with a nine they game season. Nine games, yeah. So they missed seven games right in the middle of the season. In 87, they missed three weeks, and then they did the replacement player thing and the whole replacement player thing with the NFL in 87, it was really only like one or two weeks of replacement players. And then by the third week, a lot of teams had most or all of their player, not all, but a lot of teams had many of their players back in 87. Obviously the NBA would later have a, a couple strikes lockouts where they missed decent parts of seasons. And by, and then, by the way, um, 87, in the NFL versus 94 in baseball illustrates a pretty clear difference and why outside of franchise quarterbacks, the best players in the NFL make as much as a right-handed middle reliever in baseball does is because football, the players association went on strike and a bunch of guys crossed the picket line 
And in baseball, nobody crossed the picket line. And that's why there's no salary cap in baseball and why there's still no salary cap. Yeah, they stick together. Baseball definitely sticks together much differently. I don't know why that is. Um, mm. I, I don't know why that is, but they definitely do in baseball stick together much better than the other the other sports. Hockey missed a full season, what, in like 05, I think. Oh, the 04, 05 season, yeah. But the, this whole idea of like a season just abruptly ending so close to mm. the end was crazy and you know, it's funny. I don't, I was what, 12, 11, 12 years old. I wonder, was there ever a real thought? Cause the minute it happened, I remember thinking that there was a real sense of finality to it. I don't know if anybody, once they went out, if anybody actually truly believed that there was going to be an agreement to, to come back and actually play that season. And I think now would be a good time to talk about, um, you know, the fans are central to this. And, you know, what I remember is I remember a lot of um, commercials. I remember there was the commercial with the guy in like the empty ballpark where he was like playing baseball by himself, like where he'd like run and try to catch the ball. And like, and, and there were all these like, not PSAs, but like commercials about this. Um, and again, I was eight. I'm not going to pretend I understand all the nuances of it, but it has struck me before this and then sort of subsequent things like I don't feel like we were ever given any more of a nuanced narrative than players are greedy they get paid to play a kid's game and they you know they charge for autographs and they and I mean you know movies like the replacements with Keanu Reeves that came out a few years later there it seemed to me like when I was a kid up until maybe high school and again, maybe I'm speaking of this just from my own experience and extrapolating it too much. I don't feel like I was ever told there was any reason for work stoppages in professional sports beyond greedy players. Yeah, I don't I think I might take a slightly more nuanced view of it than that. I, I, I feel like there was a little bit of, you know, what you said we wouldn't get into here, which is sort of the millionaires versus billionaires thing. I think there was a little bit of that, like don't they have enough money all of them? And can't they come to an agreement? I think the players were certainly an easier target because they're the ones that everybody knows about. Uh, I don't recall any sort of off the wall statements, you know, nothing like in the NBA strike a few years later, or the NBA lockout where guys were talking about how they might have to sell one of their 10 cars. So I don't know that the players did anything specifically to, earn that vitriol other than just striking. So I, I, I think you're generally right. I, I think that here, here's something else that I think maybe is interesting to think about. I wonder if the popularity of the NBA at that time played a role in any of this because baseball was really, I mean, the NFL is always going to be the NFL, but you know, you had guys like Jordan or, you know, mainly Jordan, the NBA, well, he was technically gone in 94, but it, the hangover was still there. The NBA, even in the years that Jordan was gone, was, was still immensely popular for that oh, year yeah. and a half or so. And I just remember thinking even adults, you know, suburban white middle-aged guys 
it was almost like the NBA had replaced baseball as like the non-football sport. And I think there was kind of this idea that baseball was boring. It was out of touch. And now you got all these greedy players. And so I think there was almost like a who needs these guys when we have these other exciting sports. And I think the NBA was probably a big part of that. So I'm kind of just sort of coming to this on the fly here, but I kind of feel like where things were with other sports kind of might've played a role in the, the who needs these greedy baseball players type of thing. Sure. I guess that's possible. And again, I I think we're speaking also from a very, uh, you know, we can only speak from our perspectives when we're talking anecdotally like that. But when we talk about stuff that we remember, which let's face it, most of the stuff we talk about here is stuff that happened, you know, usually before I before you were born, almost always before I was born, um, you know, just in the, the difference in ages there. Um, but, um, you know, we should at least mention sort of our on the fly rem- memories of it or remembrances of it, as long as it wasn't something where we were both you know, way too young to actually remember it. Um, And I think also, I mean, you know, the Ken Burns documentary came out at that time. And, you know, ironically, Ken Burns, you know, he personally, but then also his his documentary took a very sort of, you know, he's he's a very pro labor guy. So it's not as if his documentary was just beating the hell out of players for organizing as a labor union. But I think that nostalgia for baseball, you know, DiMaggio was still alive. Williams was still alive. Bob Feller was still alive. You could look back with nostalgia on a very long ago era of baseball, and it didn't seem all that long ago. I think that there's still a lot of baseball nostalgia then, but baseball nostalgia was really becoming a business in the 80s and 90s. You know, you had I remember reading articles in the local newspaper, basically, you know, where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? You know, we have these we have these greedy athletes today. And, you know, the fact that DiMaggio held out himself in the 30s was not at all discussed. But I think you were close enough to a very sort of bygone era of baseball with some of these guys still alive and, you know, talking and giving interviews that nostalgia and comparison with the present day was was easy maybe easier than it would be now. So I guess we get into now sort of as we 94 turns into 95 um, in December of 94, uh, Richard Ravitch uh, announces he's going to step down as the negotiator for the owners at the end of the year. Uh, the Clinton administration basically ordered the sides to negotiate, which is, I mean, let's be honest, that's not much more than grandstanding. Most politicians, when they get involved with sports like this, it's grandstanding, you know, to try to get themselves involved in something. Um, the next day, so in mid-December, the owners approved their own plan, including a salary cap by a vote of 25 to three. So this wasn't collectively bargained. They just all got together and decided to agree with each other. And I am imagining, although I don't have it in front of me, that Steinbrenner was one of the no votes. I don't have who that was, but you would imagine. Um, we go into 95 and there's uh, all sorts of bills in Congress. Cause now, you know, again, we're getting to the beginning of, you know, we're getting close to spring training should start in 95, um, you know, a month or two away. Um, 
in response to all of this, Donald Fear declares all 895 unsigned Major League Baseball players to be free agents in response to unilateral contract changes made by the owners. So what we're doing here is it's getting uglier. The owners are putting in a salary cap that's not collectively bargained. The players are saying, okay, then you want to make those kinds of changes. Then every one of our players is a, is, is a free agent. Um, January 26th, they're ordered by President Bill Clinton to resume bargaining and re- reach an agreement by February 6th. That's a real, um, is it like a Bible story or something where they talk about how the the ruler ordered his like he ordered the seas to do something to show that he had a limit to his powers. Like <laughs> what, exactly do, what exactly does the president think he's going to do there? You really can't order people to come to an agreement unless he's going to like federalize baseball. Um, so it says it, that deadline came and went. And then what happened is because this is a strike, not a lockout. And it took me a long time. Almost every modern day labor issue, modern day meaning post 94. So whether it was basketball in 98, 99, or what was it, 11-12, um, football a couple of times, thankfully just in off seasons, hockey in 04, 05. These have all been lockouts. They're almost always lockouts, yep. Not strikes. So that's what because it, it occurred to me for a minute, I'm like, why don't you see this anymore? It's because they're lockouts. Since it was a strike. The owners went to what they would probably consider their a bomb. Okay, we're going to go with replacement players. Like you said, it happened in '87. Um, so the the owners agree on January 13th to field the best possible teams. And this was Seelig's quote: "We're committed to playing the 1995 season, and we'll do so with the best players willing to play." Um, the replacement players were guaranteed $5,000 and five additional thousand dollars. If they made the opening day roster, the players, a union on March 14th announced if replacement players play in a regular season game, we're not settling this. Like we will have reached a point of no return. If you go out with reg in regular season games with scab players, Sparky Anderson, um, of the Detroit Tigers was put on an involuntary leave of absence as he refused to manage replacement players. And then it says, I didn't realize a couple other um, wrinkles to this. The Blue Jays could not play games with replacement players. This is great. I saw, I found this um, too. Or umpires in Ontario due to labor code amendments passed by the Ontario NDP that prohibited replacement workers. Um, And then it says the Baltimore Orioles owned by prominent union lawyer, Peter Angelos announced they would also not be using replacement players. Uh, Angelos Orioles canceled the remainder of their spring training game. Uh, The Maryland house of delegates approved legislation for teams playing at camp to bar teams playing at Camden yards from using replacement players. And on March 26th, uh, major league baseball announced the 1995 season would be reduced uh, from 162 games to 144 games uh, as the result of the use of replacement players. So we are on, we're on the precipice of the 1995 season starting with replacement players. A couple of things that I found. First of all, I found it a little, I don't know, maybe, maybe my research was wrong, but I saw that it was a Canadian law, not a provincial law in Canada, that it was for, that it would have applied to both the Blue Jays and the Expos that the Canadian government gave an exemption to the Expos 
because they didn't want the Expos to lose any more money than they had to because they were afraid that they would go out of business. Oh, that's possible. The other thing that's interesting to me is that it was Sparky Anderson. Now, obviously, people just have their own thoughts and beliefs, but you had guys who were managers in those days who were former players. I believe Joe Torre is managing the Cardinals at the beginning of 95. He not only was a former player, but a former leader of the players union. It's funny that it was Sparky Anderson, who I don't even think ever was a major league player who, who was sort of the one who was the most vocal about that. The other thing that's interesting to think about is, and I don't know, maybe you were going to touch on this, the Ripken streak, which would have been broken. Would it have been broken in 94? I don't think so. No, I don't because he didn't break it till August or so of ninety five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it would have been it would have been earlier in ninety five, obviously, but it wouldn't have it would have been in ninety five. As soon as a major league game, as soon as an Orioles game is played, then technically he's not the streak is no longer active, and there was I, I think. What I read here was that there were several players who agreed to cross the picket line so that Ripken could continue his streak. I don't know why they would need to cross the picket line unless it was just like more of a solidarity thing. And I think even the union, I, I haven't, I didn't see this in my research for this episode, but I think even the union kind of said to him on the slide, like, look, if you, you know, we won't hold it against you if you go, but he made it clear that he was a strong supporter of the union and was not going to, do if it. he had, here's the thing. If he had crossed the picket line as one of the highest profile players to preserve a streak like that, and spend six months beating up replacement players in the meantime, uh, that that's a state. That's that's a taint on that streak. So it didn't happen. So that's fine. But come on. Oh, I agree. It just with the. I mean, again, we count 1987 football games as NFL games. You know, it counts in win totals for Joe Gibbs and hell, they counted in the standings. So, I mean, he, I don't think he would be considered to have the streak in the record book if they if he had missed a regular season game with the Orioles. So would it have been a taint? Sure. But I don't know. Would have been maybe the best of two bad options as far as the streak well, was concerned. And we'll get back to that in a minute because we wouldn't have also had the important moment that happened in 95. So let's just wrap this up real quick. Um, Before that, I just want to kind of just real quick um, replacement players. Um, There are some prominent guys who are replacement players um, who later would go on to play in the majors, including Shane Spencer, who a couple of years later is a sort of a, a late season hero for the Yankees in 98. Andrew and my personal favorite, Kevin Millar, um, Pete Rose Jr., who I don't know if he ever Pete Rose Jr., I don't know if he ever actually made it to the major leagues. I think he might have for a little while. Corey Lytle, later pitcher for the Phillies and the Yankees before he dies tragically. And then there are also some older players who come back. Oil Can Boyd, a pitcher for the Red Sox in the 1980s, who we talked about when we did our 1986 episode, who famously got fall down drunk after being told he was not going to start game seven of the 86 world series. He is how old is he at this point? I guess he's not quite as old. He is 36, 35, 36 years of age. He comes back and then Pedro Borbone, who had been a relief pitcher 
for the big red machine way back in the 1970s and has not played in the major league since 1980. He hasn't played in 15 years. Pedro Borbone is, let me do some quick math here. Pedro Borbone is 48 years of age and comes back as a relief player, a relief, uh, a replacement player, I should say. So some guys who would later be in the majors, some guys who would later, who had been in the major league a decade or so earlier. It is a very motley crew of guys. And the guys who come back, who play as replacement players, they're never allowed in the players union. I always remember that from playing video games and mm-hmm. stuff is that I, I always remember one year, Shane Spencer was Sam Spengler as a <laughs> player. I mean, you could tell who these guys were most of the time, but they were never allowed to be a member of the player players union. I think that might've also affected their ability to be on baseball cards. And even today, when I, I play my Stratomatic baseball game and I order a season, from like, you know, the late nineties or early two thousands, there's guys, the cards are blank because their, their names are not, weren't allowed to be there in an agreement with the players association. But then I think they actually give you a list enclosed in the box with who, who all these guys are. So what, what difference it makes, I don't know, but for a long time, you, you and as a kid, you'd see these things and you'd be like, well, why is Shane Spencer? I understand why Michael Jordan or Barry Bonds isn't in the game, but, and then you realize it's all about players union stuff from well, the strike. The same- that was the same reason when we were kids, we didn't know. And now it's like, why don't these games have classic players in them? Because retired players are not members of the players. Union. Yeah, and so in you fact, have to, you have to make separate deals with them to get them into these games. And that's why a lot of, I know for at least for, for baseball and basketball, they've come up with these retired players associations. So mm. other than for the highest profile guys, they can make one deal. And it's made, yeah, yeah, yeah. made it a lot that's easier for to get classic players in sports video games, which I am a huge fan of, but you don't have to make an individual deal with mm. Anthony Mason or whatever, or his yeah, estate. Exactly. Um, so right. we talked about, um, we talked about, are you going to talk about the injunction that gets issued? Yeah. So I was going to talk about the end of it. So sure. here's exactly how it ends. So we're in March of 95, late March where, you know, again, the players are pretty much saying you start this season with replacement players and we're at a whole nother level of problems. Um, March 28th to 95 players voted to return to work. If a district court judge supported the national labor relations boards, unfair labor practices, complaints against the owners, which they had filed the day before by a vote of 27 to three owners supported the use of replacement players The strike ended when Judge, now Justice, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor of the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York, any Yankees fan, issued a preliminary injunction against the owners on March 31st. On April 2nd, the day before the season was scheduled to start with replacement players, the strike came to an official end. Um, Judge Sotomayor's decision received support from the panel of the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which denied the owner's request to stay the ruling. The players and owners were bound to the terms of the previous collective bargaining agreement until a new one could be reached. And the start of the season would be postponed three weeks with teams playing an abbreviated 144 game season instead of the traditional 162 games. So in the end, the court took care of it. And seal ends up with very little of what he wanted in the way of limits on salaries and free agents. Yep. And, and 
you know, in a lot of ways, you have to view Bud Selig's commissionership. And, and I, I didn't, you know, I think my opinions of Bud Selig's commissionership were a lot based on superficial stuff, all-star games and whatever, you know. Um, you can kind of look at starting in the late 80s, early 90s and until whatever was an ongoing battle for a half a dozen to a dozen small market teams. You have to view everything through the lens of that. That's what this strike was about. Um, now, he was incredibly uh, good at pooling his, you know, getting enough people in the tent where you had the smaller market teams driving the boat for a long time. Um, just a few years later, you, all you would hear from the George Steinbrenners and the owners of the Red Sox and the Cubs and the Dodgers and whoever – all you would hear is how they were tired of teams like the Royals and the Pirates complaining. That was the fracture after the late nineties or after the 94 strike. Yeah. And I think it speaks to the whole idea of the players being united and the owners not being, I do think that Selig had some good points to make about competitive balance and some of the steps they took after the nineties with revenue sharing and that type of thing has led to a much more, competitive now it's probably kind of reversed a little bit in the last five or six years where you have some teams who just are you know the orioles come immediately to mind who are just not seemingly not trying but you had some teams you had a lot more parity in major league baseball in the first decade of the 2000s than you did in the 90s and i do think that some of that revenue sharing and that type of thing played a role in all of that and that's one of the things that's sparking the current ongoing labor unrest even though this lockout is over there's still labor unrest is that the players now see the competitive balance tax as functioning as sort of a, an unofficial salary cap where every team pretty much except the dodgers is trying to stay under it and they're saying well in effect that is a salary cap um so the 95 season starts and we won't go into the, the blow by blow here, but there's a lot of fan demonstrations at games, um, you know, fans booing and holding up signs of dollar signs and talking about greed and throwing dollar bills onto the field. Donald fear is at the um, home opener at Yankee stadium and he's booed and I guess ends up ultimately flipping off one of the fans who's, uh, holding up a sign that says shame on you with the dollar sign is the S. Um, interestingly, the games are still played with replacement umpires because that, that hadn't resolved itself yet. That's but, right. Um, that had happened just four years before that too. So that was a much more regular occurrence. Um, you see that. Yeah. Then the NFL yeah. a few years, we see that from time to time. So the 95 season is kind of a weird season. Um, but I guess, and this is, I, I, Unless you have anything else, I feel like the, a good way to sort of almost put a button on this is by the late 90s, early, you know, so from a World Series getting canceled and demonstrations and, like you mentioned, baseball seemingly falling way behind at least the other two big sports in, in uh, America to, you know, it's the early 2000s, it's the late 90s, and all these gorgeous new stadiums are being built. Um Attendance is up, revenues are up, payrolls are up, um, and that continues today, whether they want you to believe it or not. Um, what are some of the stuff that starts to bring it back? I think the first one that's obvious is Ripken. Um, you know, as 
people start to get over everything or, you know, at least it dies down a little and, you know, the summer's going on and it's with Ripken, it's an everyday thing. It's not a batting average streak. It's not a home run thing. It's every day he plays, he's getting one game closer to that record. Um, And, you know, he's a, a guy in a, He's played his whole career for his hometown team, the team his father played for, the team his father managed. He's, you know, stuck it out through bad, you know, he started his career with really good teams and then they were bad. And then by this point, they're good again or getting good again. Um, so that happens in 95. And then you get this kind of exciting 95 playoff, specifically in the American League. Um, you have the Mariners get hot at the very end of the season, a team who, seemed like they were on their way, you know, had they not had that kind of turnaround in August where there might not be a Seattle Mariners this, these days. They were having a stadium issue too. Yep. And that didn't um, get approved. The, the new stadium, uh, the, I'm blanking on it at the minute, the one of the successor to the kingdom was, what's that called? It was safe Safeco, for yeah. years and now it's something else, but. That didn't get approved until well into the 95 season. Yeah, so you get that, you get a, a good divisional series with them and the Yankees. Um, you get the Indians making this run to the postseason for the first time in 40 years, uh, ultimately getting to the World Series. And then I think 96, people don't want to admit this, but and they don't now. The 96 Yankees were a human interest story with Joe Torrey specifically and his brother who was in the hospital and got the heart transplant on the off day. Um, Doc and Daryl. Yeah. And, and they were a, a human interest story. Um, and then I think we have to say the big one is 98. Um, yeah, absolutely. No question. 98 a, a very famous baseball season specifically for Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, but really Mark McGuire. Um, chasing and ultimately blowing right past Roger Maris's home run record. Uh, McGuire breaks it first. McGuire ends up with 70. Sosa ends up with 66. Um, you know, obviously the, the home run comes at home in St. Louis and it's a very, very famous moment. Um, and that sort of baseball being baseball, you have to look back at that with a little less, uh, you know, with a little less mud on your shoes, you know, and, and, and say, oh yeah, this is, um, it all ties into the next scandal, which was steroids, which was, it was obvious what was going on with those guys, but baseball, people wanted home runs. Baseball wanted to give them home runs, sort of like with Babe Ruth, right after the 1919 White Sox scandal, people wanted home runs, give them home runs. And yeah, they're pretty obviously on steroids and a bunch of other guys are as well, but there's no specific rule against it. So, well, there was a rule against it. There just wasn't testing. There was no enforcement mechanism. So dingers for everybody. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think also, and I don't want to sound like a broken record here, but, you know, 1998, Jordan just retired. The NBA is getting ready to go into a little bit of a, a, a down period and all of a sudden, you know, Nike needs new endorsements and, you know, McGuire and Sosa and all these guys. And so that was a big part of it. Um, I also think that 
baseball having the Yankees be really good for those four or five years, you know, the biggest market in the country. I think that helped a lot as far as just getting eyeballs and people in the stands. There's places where it never fully comes back. And the other thing, too, is you got to realize is that baseball, baseball has always been a local sport. It's been a local sport for 75, you know, probably for 175 years. It's not like the other sports. It's not like the NBA. It's certainly not like the NFL. The number of people who care about a baseball game that's not being played in their city is much lower. I can probably tell you memories of watching all sorts of NBA finals and NFL playoff games, even March Madness that had nothing to do with any team that I was a fan of. All of my memories of baseball are basically of Yankee games. And I guess, you know, since I've been in DC, also of Nationals games, it's just not the same as the other sports. So when you say like what brought baseball back, I do think that Ripken and then later McGuire and Sosa were a big part of it. But I also think in a lot of ways it came back where the teams were good and it didn't come back where the teams haven't been as good. Yeah, and I think to underscore what you were talking about, even your points are even more underlined with um, with the regular season. Like, it honestly kind of amazes me that there's as many national baseball broadcasts as they are. Like, do you really ever watch Sunday night baseball if your team's not involved in it? I mean, at least there you could say, well, it's July, it's August, there might not be anything else on, but like, when was the last time you found, and again, I'm not speaking for everybody, but like a lot more people will watch a, a game of, and we'll take pro football out of it for a minute because pro football is a juggernaut. People will watch a, you know, a, an NBA game they have no interest in. It doesn't have to be a great game unless it's like a top two starting pitching matchup and it just happens to break that way. Like, does anybody really, I'm not going to tune in for the Braves and the Dodgers on a Sunday night in May. And they're good teams. They're, you know, the last two world champions, they've traded a bunch of talent this off season. It's just not how it is. Which is why I think some of the steps they're making with some of their broadcasts where they're taking them off of cable and putting them on Apple TV and all this stuff is, is a bit is a mistake, but that's a different, different conversation. Yeah. I mean, look, baseball is always going to be baseball. It's not, going to be the sexy sport, but I do think that sort of rumors of its demise are always greatly exaggerated. There's always more people in the park for an MLB game than there is for almost any NBA game. Now, some of that is capacity and I get that, but there's a reason the capacity is what it is in the first place. So, you know, I also think, you know, they talk about, well, you know, certain baseball never did it ever recover from the 94 strike. I feel like if you look at a lot of attendance numbers from the 50s, 60s, 70s, a lot of those attendance numbers weren't that great to begin with. I think a certain fan, somebody who was in their 40s or 50s at the time, may have never gone back to baseball. And that becomes sort of a metaphor of like, well, it never recovered from the strike. And look, they first certainly struggled for a while and would baseball have maybe been different for a few years in the nineties, if there'd never been a strike. But if the 1994 world series gets played other than maybe in Montreal, I don't see how baseball is much different 25 years later. No, 
I think I think you're right. So it's it's one of those that was for me specifically. It's one of the earliest big sports news moments I remember. But it's also kind of interesting how up until six months ago, how long it had been since I've really thought about it. You know what I mean? The other thing I would say is, and this is not to get political, but there also was just not the level of. What's the word I'm looking for? here? There wasn't the level of national issues sort of in the news. The Cold War had ended. I don't think a, a baseball strike or even a football strike, I mean, or any sport would be the news. They wouldn't be leading the national news with a sports strike in this day and age. There's just too much else going on. So I think there was a time period in the mid 90s where that type of sports story was going to get a lot of national news media play. And I don't think that would be the case in the 21st century. So I think there's that piece of it also. Yeah. And the way you can tell that, at least as far as baseball goes, is that we had this and it really didn't. You know, it got mentioned on some shows, but, you know, the sense I got with that was more if the host was a baseball fan and they wanted that brought up. Um, but uh, football may be a little different. Um, if the Super Bowl got canceled, it would be, a, you know, but I think in general, you're right. But it is it is an interesting it's an interesting period in time also, because the not just the world, but five years later the sports landscape was so different with the advent of the internet and all of those things. And so sports in 94 was almost more similar to sports in 74 than it was to sports in 99 or especially, you know, the early 2000s. So it's, it comes at an interesting time from a technological point of view as well. So that that's kind of interesting to me as well. So. Sure. Yeah. And it, it's one of the last big sports stories that didn't have a significant internet presence. Which maybe impacted the way it played out. I'm not sure how, but it may, maybe that had an impact. All right. Well, a little bit different, you know, a lot of off the field stuff today, but we thought it would be a little bit timely based on what's been going on in the news for most of the winter and early spring. Uh, we hope you all enjoyed it. And we hope you all enjoy the baseball season, but by the time this posts, we'll, Already be in full swing, no pun intended. Andrew, did you have anything else to add? You intended that pun, but other than that, no. <laughs> well, until next time, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast, 
We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.